I'm glad we sang that chorus one more time because I couldn't hit the notes of the last time with the music there. And I can get pretty high. I've got a girl's voice, some say. (laughs) I'm sure they say it in a nice, respectful way, in front of me anyway. I'd like for us to stop and pray one more time as we look into his word. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, it is good now to open your word. How sweet and precious it is to us as it carried the message of salvation to most of us. We thank you, God, that we can study it so that we can walk worthy of the manner to which we have been called. Thank you that we can be the sons and daughters of you, adopted into your family. Thank you for the immense price that was paid as you willingly gave your son and Christ willingly said, not my will but thine be done as he went to the cross. Allow us to feel very loved and special today because of that and allow us, Lord, to know you better because of our time in your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. As we go through life there is no doubt that many individuals are trying to better themselves. It might be in the area of their mind, maybe doing different um, uh, projects or doing different uh, things, habits to improve your mind, increase your thinking. It might be in the area of our bodies. Maybe some individuals will be putting some exercise in or pushing the fork away a little bit so that their bodies are uh, more what they want them to be in this world. As we go through this world, there is no doubt that we don't, just as Christians, want to better ourselves, but everybody is in the area of trying to better themselves in some way. There was a best-selling book that was written in 2003 by Robert Fulgham. It was titled, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. This is a very interesting book, and it's an interesting title for a couple reasons. First of all, most people who have read this, who are reading this book, have been through kindergarten, so that's going to be a big plus for them. And then the second reason why it's appealing is because if they had been through kindergarten, then they already knew everything that they needed to know. Is that appealing to you? To know everything that's important, the important facts and details in life. There are famous philosophers who have dedicated their lives to finding the meaning of life. A familiar scene in some books and even in some movies is of a seeker traveling the world trying to find the meaning of life, perhaps even scaling a mountain, talking to an individual that's been meditating for 40 years and asking them the hard questions. What's the meaning of life? Today, as we look into God's word, I want to suggest to us that we're going to look at something that is foundational for us to understand. It is something that even years ago, it was a little more common in our verbiage. And what I'm talking about is the phrase, a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman. That was a description that we would hear years ago, well, she's a God-fearing woman. 
He's a, he was a God-fearing man, we might hear. All that to bring us to our text, Luke 23. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, turn to Luke 23. If you do not have a Bible, please use one of the Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. And if you do not own a Bible of your own, please take that Bible as our gift to you. We do have a desire that anybody that comes through our doors that does not have a Bible would have one. So please take that and keep that. But if everybody would find Luke 23, and as you are finding that, I'm going to go ahead and ask you if you would be willing to keep your eyes open and be thinking a little bit. Most of you can do more than one thing at once. I get that. I barely can. Depends on what they are, actually. I want to ask you to keep something in mind as we go through these verses in Luke 23. I want you to keep in the back of your mind, because we're going to come back to it at the end to hopefully make a powerful point. I want you to keep in mind the three occasions where it's mentioned to Jesus, save yourself. There's going to be three different groups that will say this, either to him or about him. And I want you to note those because we'll return to that at the end. So keep your eyes open for those phrases, save yourself. Regarding this opening of we um, can know all there really is that's important, we're going to look into history, and I'm going to suggest to us that every individual in this world, everyone in this room, everyone you have ever known, every individual will line up behind one of two persons. And we're going to look at those two persons today. We're going to start reading in verse number 32 of Luke 23. And I'll read down through the first part of verse 40. The Bible says this, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. And us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? Let's stop right there. I'm suggesting to us today that every individual that will ever be born will line up behind one of these two criminals. Now, in order for us to have a good understanding of this account in Luke 23 of the crucifixion, and specifically what I'm getting at today, in the difference in these two criminals, we need to be reminded of the other accounts of the crucifixion of Christ. In Matthew 27 and in Mark 15, both of those accounts tell us that when Christ was crucified, it was not one of the criminals that mocked Christ. 
and spoke out in a disrespectful way, but it was both criminals. So there is some point where it goes from both criminals mocking Jesus to only one of them mocking Jesus and the other one not just not just not mocking Jesus, but he responds in horror that this other criminal would say what he says. He is appalled by such a statement. What would move this one criminal from the place of mocking and shouting and cursing, even before he was about to die, to go to a place of being horrified when another was doing that. Well, my suggestion to us this morning, it was no less than a miracle had taken place. A miracle had taken place in the heart of one of these criminals. And in his few words, we learn about the main thing, the main information that we need. And then we see two realities that helped him get to the main thing. If you're taking notes today, when we look at this and we look at the criminal and the change of mind, I think that it's fair to say the main thing is he was a God-fearing man. He didn't start as a God-fearing man. But at some point, God redeemed this criminal and he began to fear God. And those are his words. Look again, starting in verse number 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? The main thing that had happened in his life and the main thing that needs to happen to any individual that walks on this earth is they need to become a God-fearing individual. Now, when we say God-fearing, that's not a very popular phrase today. I said earlier that years ago it was common to say she's a God-fearing woman. And you will hear that every once in a while today, but it's not near as common. Let me tell you first of all about this criminal that turned to Christ what he was not seeking. He was not seeking someone to let him off of the cross. We don't find that anywhere recorded here. He was not looking for someone to give him a pardon from the physical death that was coming. That's exactly what the other criminal wanted. But the one that rebukes the one that mocked God, he was not seeking to come down off that cross at all. We don't find anything of that in any of the record that God gives us. It's very possible that while he was hanging there and observing what was going on, that he's thinking about his crimes. We do that, don't we? We think about how we have offended God. We think about some of the worst things that we have done that we don't even want to whisper or another person might hear it. And this individual is very likely seeing how men would punish a lawbreaker and very much so when someone is near death, they are thinking about if this is how man treats a lawbreaker, how is God going to treat me? Perhaps that was something that went through his mind. Most men do not live with a healthy fear of God. If you talk to the average person, 
they will tell you, if you talk about eternity, you talk about the future, talk about heaven, they will tell you something like this on a regular basis. They say, well, I've lived a pretty good life. That is a response by thousands of individuals. They think they've been pretty good, and so very, very likely they will get into heaven. And we need to guard against not only thinking that, but we need to guard against what you have been made a steward of. If you know Jesus Christ today, you have been made a steward of the gospel. And let me just give a side note here just for a moment. Because as you and I are stewards of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, risen, and coming again, and that mankind can have forgiveness if they turn to him, we are stewards of that. We need to be very, very careful not to fall into the trap of changing the message that sounds just prettier to the ears. There's a temptation, and there's a huge movement with this today. And I want to just challenge us as stewards of the gospel, ones that have this and ones who have been told they need to promote this They need to understand that it is not in what God can do in this lifetime, and that's why you should turn to God. We need to not lead with, if you turn to God, then your sickness problems are going to go away. The whole story of the gospel is not there so that you can be wealthy And it is nuts to me that people who are selling the prosperity gospel have to disregard the scriptures as well as 2,000 years of Christian history. God's plan to give the gospel was not built on the wealth of Christians. It was built on the blood of Christians. And this is an absurd idea that will, and here's the danger. Are you ready? It's very subtle, so you have to pay attention. It takes Christ away from being preeminent and it makes what Christ can give you preeminent instead. And some will lead with that and they will think this will be a gateway to Christ for people and we need to be very, very careful because you are selling something that is false. And as they go through their life and they find out their life is not more comfortable after they turn to Christ, They're wondering what's going on. They were sold something that wasn't true. And so we need to be very, very careful. When someone gets saved, they are not getting saved from their financial problems. When someone gets saved, they are not getting saved from their bad habits that they are reaping the rewards from for their entire life now. That's not what they're getting saved from. We need to be clear that when someone is getting saved, they are being saved from the judgment of God. And I understand that that does not sell near as easily as your problems will go away if you take Jesus. I get it. Having said that, an individual needs to understand if they're going to fear God, it's not just the idea that, oh, well, yeah, I got an idea of what God is and he's all good and all love and so I'll take what God has to offer and add that to my life. An individual has to come to a place where they fear God and that is what this criminal said. Do you not fear God? 
and the coming judgment. He understood that he was immediately at odds with God. And so what does he ask for? He asks for mercy. He doesn't ask for relief from his pain. He didn't ask to be put out of his misery on that cross. He asks God for mercy. And there are two realities that we find right in the story, right in the account. The first one is found in the first part of verse 41, where it says, he's, he, he already rebukes the other criminal, and then he says, we indeed justly, let's read the whole thing, uh, starting in verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. What does he understand? This criminal understands that he is getting what he deserves. He also understands that he has nothing to offer God. There's nothing that he has left right there at the foot of the cross that he can take with him when his life is over. It's never been so clear in his life that he is an enemy of God. Never been so clear as the point where he is being killed and tortured. And if this isn't beautiful, I don't know what is. He's being punished for his crimes that will send him to hell right next to the Savior that can save his soul. And our sin is never brighter and more obvious than when it's exposed to the light. And he was exposed to righteousness. If you can imagine in your house, you're looking through in the morning hours and you're looking through your house and it's a sunny day, but the curtains are pulled. And as you look, it looks pretty clean to you in your house for some of us anyway. And as it looks pretty clean to you and you're pretty satisfied with it and you go back and you pull the curtains and the sunlight comes in and what can you see? You can see the dust. You can see the stuff in the air when the light comes through. You see, our sin is never more obvious than when we are exposed to the righteousness of God and it's exactly what happened to this Man, he had a clear perception that he was guilty. He understood his guilt. And then the second thing that we see from him was that he understood there was hope. He understood very clearly there was hope. Look at verse 41 again. We'll read down through verse 43. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What brought him to a place where he was a God-fearing man? He understood who Jesus was. He understood his guilt and there was forgiveness that was available to him because he compared himself to the perfection of Christ. And for all of us, that has to be our standard. Because you are creative enough to find somebody else who is not as good as you. Right? You don't have to look that far. There's plenty of dirty dogs out there. 
You can go and look and you say, well, I'm better than that guy. And that's why the standard always has to be Jesus. Christ-likeness is our goal. And when someone does not know of their eternity, they have to look to the standard of Christ, which is impossible for anybody to get to on their own. And so we have to simply, just like this man did, ask for mercy. Ask for forgiveness. He says, we are getting exactly what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And so he moves from an assessment of his own condition to an assessment of Jesus Christ. We cannot know for sure what this man knew about Jesus. Now, it wasn't a very big world that Jesus lived in at that point. He traveled back and forth ministering for three years. Jesus was on display for at least three years. This criminal knew that Christ had a sign hanging over his head that said what? What did the sign say? King of the Jews. Do you remember the Pharisees wanted them to change it? They said, don't let it say king of the Jews. Let it say he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate basically said, what I've written, I have written. He knew he had a sign over his head that said king of the Jews, and he had been able to observe this man's response through the crucifixion. And so he rebukes the other guy. And then Jesus Christ responds to him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ responded to him just like he will respond to you and to me. This guy says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He is asking here for forgiveness and Jesus says, Father, or Jesus had just said, do you remember, did you see it? Just earlier, Jesus had said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Maybe he heard that. I think for sure he heard that. And I think if he's thinking to himself, if this man who might be and is the son of God can forgive the guys that are inflicting this punishment on him, then maybe he can forgive me as well. He did not ask to have the punishment removed. He understood that nobody survives crucifixion. Instead, he asked to be remembered in the Messiah's kingdom. Now, some of you like to be first. You just do. I get that. I think there's something within a lot of people that want to be first. I want to be the first one to have the new gadget, the first one to get the information. I want to be the first one to know something or do something. I want to be first. I want to suggest to us today that this guy had the opportunity to be first with something that we very much so today, repeat. This is one of those common scriptures that we talk about through our lives, particularly when we come to the end of our life or to a funeral. In 2 Corinthians 5, the first 10 verses talk about this, this promise that there is no place where we're gonna have to wait before we get to Jesus. The promise is to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. So all those jokes that you've heard about St. Peter standing at the gates of heaven and you've got to answer a question before you can get in or he's going to do something, that's not Bible. 
That's hogwash. There is no place where we have to go and wait before we see our Savior. But instead, when we die, if we know Jesus Christ as Savior, we will be present with the Lord. To be absent from this physical body is to be present with the Lord. And Jesus Christ talks to this guy, and this guy is first. You can't be first with this one. But you can be in the group. You can line up behind him. You can be one of the ones who, when you are done in this current world, will say, I know Jesus, and it's not of any works that I have done, but because of his mercy that he has saved me. Jesus, in his response, did you catch it? He said, truly, I say to you. I think he's just giving an affirmation of how hard this is. Now, do you understand that some of you have studied the, the cross and what they were going through and the hanging and the pressure on their diaphragm, having to pull themselves up just to get air? And Christ doesn't have, you know, an economy of words here. He says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And I think he adds the truly because it's hard to believe. Jesus doesn't just say, sure. He says, truly, I say to you, you can believe this. And I think this guy was the first one to receive the promise to be absent from his body was to be present with the Lord. What can we do with this? Three applications that I've given us. Uh, Take these down, pray through these. Number one, and this is so important for us, we need to be a constant student of the character of God. We need to be a constant student of the character of God and not just love and kindness and omnipresence, but all of them. I have a practice in my prayer time of going through and praying through the attributes of God. It's very easy just to go on the internet and just just Google attributes of God and there's a list that'll come right up. And we thank God for these and we study these because they are so important to us. And the love is important, but our God is a just God. And because of that, only those who have turned to him for forgiveness will be with him forever. So be a constant student of the characteristics of God. And then number two, and this has got nothing to do with our text, but it's got everything to do with you if you know Jesus. Rejoice in your position of being able to produce fruit. It's likely that there has been somebody who has come to Christ and said, man, I wish I was just like the criminal on the cross and I could have within moments gone to be with Jesus. And I've heard individuals say that. I'm ready to go. I want to be with my Savior. Can I suggest to you that the reason you are not there right now is because you have been left here to produce fruit for him? You should rejoice in your position of earning crowns, producing fruit, not working so you can earn salvation, but working to show your appreciation for the price that was paid. Rejoice in your position. And then finally, live in the reality of the wrath of God. And I I just was borderline thinking, I don't want to end on a downer like that one. People walking out all discouraged and shoulders down. The reality of the wrath of God. 
A couple days ago, I was in an office. There were a variety of people that were there, and I had just been walking through this. And I had a clear picture in my head of individuals, and they were lining up behind one of these two thieves. And I can't think of a better motivator than being living in the reality of the wrath of God to telling someone you need to get not behind this guy, but behind this guy. You need to call out for forgiveness and turn to Jesus Christ. And so don't take that as a downer. Take that as a motivation for producing fruit, for spreading this wonderful message that God has given us. Okay, before we close, I asked you to pay attention, right? I saw some of your writing, so I know you were taking notes. I asked you to pay attention to the three times that Christ was told, save yourself. Here's the three groups that it was. It was the rulers, first of all, and then it was the soldiers, second, and then it was the criminal. Started out two criminals, ended up being one criminal. And some of you, if you were taking note, you might have seen that the rulers added to it. Instead of just saying, save yourself, they, they got a little snarky, didn't they? They added something beforehand. They said, he saved others. Let's see if he can save himself. And I think everybody that would say this was insinuating something. They were all insinuating that Jesus could not save himself. I think that's clear. I think they were mocking him because of that. They were saying he could not save. But if you know my Jesus, you understand that no matter what was going on on that cross, he had the power to save. But the only way that Jesus Christ could save sinners was for him not to save himself from that cross. Brothers and sisters, do you know how loved you are? Do you know that he stayed on that cross and that song that we sang? He could have called 10,000 angels. And he did not because he loves you. That's why. It's because he loves you. And he took it and he stayed on that cross until he whispered that final powerful line, it is what? Finished. And who was that for? For you and for me. Do you see how loved you are? Do you see what he has done? And do you see, we sang one song where it said the, the bars of death were broken away and that wasn't just for Jesus Christ, but that was for you and for me. He did this and he rose from the dead. He conquered sin and he conquered death so that we could say, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? These mockers were all wrong. Jesus could save himself, but he chose instead to save others by staying on that cross. And you and I, if you know Christ today, we celebrate by saying he is risen, and some respond with he is risen indeed. Let's pray. Oh, Father, 
as you have heard this story of your love rehearsed again and again and again. We praise you for it. May it be fresh to us even this day. May we feel so loved by you and by the work of Christ on the cross. I thank you for the wonderful blessing that it is to be left in this world, unlike that criminal, so that we can show our appreciation for your sacrifice by how we live. We thank you for that. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, I'm gonna ask Ron to play through just a stanza on the piano. If you are here today and you have never asked God to forgive you of your sins, this is the time. There is no other reason you are in this world except for to be loved by God and to accept his gift of salvation. Ask him to forgive you right now, even if you don't know the words to say. Even if you have thought for years and years you were a follower of Christ, but you're not, turn to him now. For others, we'll give you a chance to pray as well. Maybe God laid something on your heart. As he plays through, would you just take a moment to pray to God?